You know, if you've ever totally remodeled a house, you know what a pain it can be. As an architect, I get involved in, in a lot of remodeling jobs. And I had one this last summer that every time I looked at the, pro the job site and came home, I told Jan, says, it just makes me tired looking at it. And uh, I was going to use that as an example, but I thought about a better one. When Jan and I first moved back to Emmett, after I got my architecture license and started establishing my architecture practice here in town, we had to move into my parents' basement. And because uh, we were we were as poor as dirt, you know, but we didn't know that at the time. We just knew that uh, we couldn't afford to live someplace else. So we moved into the basement of mom and dad's house. But that that got tiring after a while. So I I decided, you know, I'll go talk to a realtor in town. You know, he, he was our insurance agent and I know he owns some properties around town. I went into his office and and I asked him if he had any houses that he'd be willing to sell us. And he said, well, how much money you got for a down payment? And I said, well, we got $400. You know, and he kind of thought for a while, and he looked down and kind of moved his hand around on the counter and stuff, because that's probably how he thought and his stuff. And he says, uh, uh, I'll tell you why. We got this house over at 4th and Boise here in Emmett. It's a two-story, old two-story house. And he said, I'll sell it to you for $400 down and $150 a month. And so, even though that was back in, in the 70s, you know, if, so picture an old two-story house built in 1904 and uh, for $150 a month and picture what that would look like. Okay, then go into the kitchen and whatever that was in your mind, downgrade that about six steps, okay? <laughs> and then go into the bathroom and take it another downgrade, you know? So, so we agreed. We were anxious to get out of mom and dad's house. And we were young. We were newly married and, and just starting a business, you know? And so we were excited about what we could do with this old, you know, very traditional, really kind of a historic-looking house. You know, the, the problem with the bathroom was that when the house was built, it had no plumbing, it had no electricity, so those things were added on, and they'd added the bathroom onto the back of the house. The door was right off the living room, so if the bathroom door was open, you came into the living room, you saw the toilet. There, there it was, you know, and, uh, you know, so we, we'd keep the bathroom door shut, and, uh, but, you know, the the tub in the bathroom, it had a, had a metal tub with a porcelain metal tub, but it was, it was beat up and it was, you know, there was rust and, and stuff around. And I thought, and I looked and it had been set on an old concrete shower base. And so I thought, okay, I'll take the, the, the tub out. I'll see what shape that base is and stuff, you know, and then we'll go from there. I'd really like to add a whole new tub. So, so I finally got the tub out, which is a, a big job. I don't know how they got it through the door because <laughs> I pulled the hinges and it was still still scuffing up the sides, which were already scuffed up. But anyway, and then I looked at the, the shower base and they had never plumbed the drain from the tub directly into the drain. It just drained down onto the shower base. And so that had overflown probably several times over the years. And so besides having to knock out that concrete base that was about that thick, you know, the whole floor boards were all rotted. You know, the sheathing was rotted. So I had to rip that up. Then the two-by-four joists underneath were kind of shot and weren't big enough to begin with. And then I remembered at that point, getting down to the floor joist, 
I'm an architect and I don't have a building permit. <laughs> and I, I was deep into building permit territory by this time, doing all this structural stuff, you know. So I called the building inspector and he knew me and I, I knew him and he came over and looked at it. I'm not sure to this day whether he laughed with me or at me. <laughs> but, but he issued the building permit, no problem and those kind of things. And so I, I beefed up the floor joist. That was a lot of hard work and I put new sheathing down on the floor and those kind of things and I really didn't want to mess with the plumbing at the, this point so I was you know going to be very careful as I I took the existing toilet and I put the wax ring around and all those kind of things and I carefully nudged it like this and I heard a crash down below and all of that cast iron old plumbing had broken and crashed you know and I go, oh no, I'm going to have to call a plumber. And uh, so I called a friend of mine that I went to school with, and he said, well, it just so happens that uh, tomorrow I don't have enough for my crew to do, so we can get there tomorrow. And then I thought, you know, this is really stupid to do all of this work and replace the plumbing and not get the toilet out of view. And so I spent all day and most of the night putting in a wing wall, putting the sink you know, it's the first thing you see, and then there's a wing wall, so you can't see the toilet, and moving the shower over here, and did all of that work, and, and those kind of things. And uh, so that was a lot of hard work. The plumber came over, and he replumbed everything, and we, we got it done, and those kind of things. But, you know, as, as men, you know how remodeling projects go. We're, we're not near as much in a hurry as our wives are, right? <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, I had put in all these walls, you know, I, you know, I, my wife hadn't heard of this thing or thought that I'd heard of a such thing called insulation because there was no heating in the bathroom and it was getting towards winter and it was cold and it was cold when she got in there and she was pregnant with our first child, pregnant with Ben, you know, and she started saying, it's just too cold to go in there. And so she came down one night in the middle of the night, she's pregnant, and she had to break the ice in the toilet <laughs> to, to use it. You know, this, this is our remodeling project. And, uh, you know, by the time we sold the house and went to seminary in Kansas City, I still hadn't finished the taping and texturing and the, the painting in the bathroom. We'd done some other things, you know, we... We'd remodeled the upstairs some, you know. As the Lord would have it, we really needed to do something about the porch on the back side, the old dilapidated porch. But there came a big windstorm one day, and a tree fell over and just took the, the, took the porch off, you know. Now the house looks pretty good all these years later. It's, still, it's over at 4th and Boise, a two-story house built in, in, uh, in 1904. You know, and so the owners since then, they've all put a little bit of work into it. But uh, just like you remodel an old home, every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ is a remodeling project, right? There's a lot of the old that has to go. When we receive Christ, there's a lot that has to be torn down. There's a lot that has to be ripped out before we are conformed to the image of Christ. The good news is that the remodeling project of the believer in Jesus Christ is also a restoration project. There's a lot of demolition that has to take place. There's a lot of attitudes. There's a lot of bad character traits. There's baggage and habits of the old life that, that totally have to go. A lot of things that take a lot of work and a lot of time and effort to get out of our lives. And that's the nature of an exhaustive remodeling project.
But the Christian life is also a building project. It's out with the old, and it's what? In with the new. And so remodeling projects are exciting, especially, guys, if we do our part and get it done. So our wife gets that new kitchen and gets the things that, that she needs and those kind of things. But it's also exciting. So please turn over to Paul's letter, the, the Ephesians, for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, the 22nd verse. Because here we see that each one of us has a personal responsibility in the demolition of our own old life. It's not only what God is doing, and we'll see some of the things that, that God does. It's, it's what also we need to do as well. And so in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul commands, and he's changing the analogy here just a little bit as of getting dressed, putting, on the, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. But he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Every one of us, each one of us, is to lay aside the old self, put on the new self that is being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, becoming more and more like Christ in righteousness and holiness. Remember Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, being conformed to the image of Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that does it. But we participate with him in both the demolition and the building process. We participate with the Holy Spirit. We work with the Holy Spirit. And we do that by such means as listening to the word of God as it is taught and preached, and by our own personal study of God's Word, we're transformed in the image of Christ through such practices. We call them the spiritual disciplines like prayer and meditation on God's Word. Through worship that glorifies God, we are transformed in the image of Christ. Through fellowship with one of believers in our fellowship and as we build into the lives of, of one another. All of these are the many means, the many ways that the Holy Spirit takes out the old and brings in the new, as he makes us into what God wants us to be, restored to the beautiful image of Jesus Christ in his perfect humanity. So please turn to the 14th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So we do a little review here. Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 19, at verse 19. One of the main themes that Paul keeps hammering on in the 14th chapter of Romans is that when it comes to our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to our relationship to everyone else that is in Christ, we are not in the demolition business. We are not in the demolition business. It's not our business to tear down another believer and determine what goes and what stays. I, whenever I think of that, you know, I always remember, remember Sanford and Son on TV? Freddie Prince, not my job, man. <laughs> you know, whenever you're tempted to tear down something in the life of another person, it's not my job, man. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. So he says in, in verse 19, 
of Romans 14. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God. When it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be in the demolition business, but be in the building business. Build them up. Build the life of Christ into them. Edify them. Pursue the things that make for peace. Chase after the things that make for peace in the building up of one another. And he says in verse 15, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. What goes and what stays in the life of another believer is up to the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you risk destroying a fellow believer. Now, one caveat here. If a fellow believer is caught up in sin that is threatening to burn down his life and burn down the lives of those around them, that's another matter. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul tells us how to handle that. He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. If you pass by your neighbor's house and you saw smoke coming out, and his house was being threatened to be burned down, you would run in, you would warn him, you might help him put out the fire if it's not too bad yet, but you would get him out of there, you'd get him out of that dangerous situation. But Paul says here, be careful that you're not caught up in it. Look to yourself that you are not tempted if you're trying to restore a brother. And the question is, tempted to do what? I don't think it's tempted to be, to to do the exact same sin that the brother's caught up in, like in, if he's cheating on his wife, I don't think him doing that's going to cause me, tempt me to cheat on my wife. But when it says you are to restore him in the spirit of gentleness, that gives us a clue here. Don't come in to restore a brother. It says do it with gentleness. Don't come in with Bible in hand and just hack him one thing after another, one Bible verse after another, and just hack him up. Don't be tempted to sin against him as you are restoring. Don't go in with a bulldozer and start knocking stuff down. But you take him to God's Word and you gently, through the Holy Spirit, show him what is this doing to you and your, your family and and, and you restore him through God's word. In fact, the word translated restore is the same word translated fix. Fix. When Jesus was going by the Sea of Galilee and he saw some men fixing their nets. You know, their nets would get torn they would, and they needed to be fixed and tied back together. It's the same word here translated restore. Jesus called them to follow him. It's the same word translated equip where the pastor-teacher equips the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Pastor Ray Stedman called it fixing up the saints for the work of service. We all need to be fixed up. So when it's clearly sin, those who are spiritual have an obligation to restore the sinner, to fix him up, to build him up. But there's a host of other things, the non-essentials, such as what a person eats and drinks or what days they hold sacred, what their politics are, what their movies they watch, what movies they watch or don't watch. And I could go on on that we have, as believers have no business being in the demolition business. So after Paul has told the believers in Rome not to be in the demolition business, he tells them in Romans chapter 15 and verses 1 through 3, 
how to be in the building business, how to edify one another, where we have that wonderful privilege, we have that weighty responsibility of building one another up. And we do this, we'll see three things. We do this by bearing the weaknesses of those without strength. We see it by pleasing our neighbor for what is good to his edification, for building him up. And then in verse 3, we do it by following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, we build one another up by bearing the weaknesses of those who are without strength. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourself. Now to understand in the context of Romans chapter 14 who the weak and who the strong are, uh, go back to the beginning of chapter 14 to verses 1 and 2, where he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who eats or who is weak eats vegetables only. See, here in Rome, the stronger believers knew that the dietary laws of the laws of Moses of the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They also knew that the Sabbath law, keeping the Sabbath, had been fulfilled in Christ. We're not under obligation to keep the Sabbath in line with the strict Old Testament rules. The strong in faith believed that they could eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, sacrificed to a, a pagan idol in, in a pagan temple, because they knew that the idol was nothing, and there was nothing wrong with the meat. In fact, it was the best cuts you could buy in town. But in the church in Rome, there were weak brothers, probably from Jewish backgrounds, whose consciences would be bothered if they ate certain foods or violated the Sabbath or didn't keep all the feast and festival days of the, the Jewish calendar year. They'd observed the dietary laws and the Sabbath all their lives and all these other feasts and, and festivals, and, and that wasn't going to change overnight. So Paul's direction to the strong was that they should not flaunt their liberty to do any of these things that doing so would cause a weaker brother to stumble. To follow their example, they would be violating their own conscience. Paul sums it up in verse 21 of Romans chapter 14. He says, find the right one, I'm still in 13, okay, 21. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. In other words, love for your weaker brother or sister in Christ should trump your exercise of liberty in matters where the Bible does not give specific commands. When the Bible does not say this is explicitly right or explicitly wrong, don't use your liberty to do that thing if it causes your brother to stumble. You see, the weaker brother has not yet grown enough in the faith to understand or get a hold of the truth, the biblical truth concerning these things. Very simply, they didn't have enough knowledge. They lacked knowledge about it. They don't know enough about it. Uh, we see that over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. In the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Corinthians Paul is dealing specifically here with meat sacrificed to idols 
in the pagan temples, not just meat in general as he does in Romans. And he writes in verse 9 of the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says to the strong in faith, but take care that this liberty of yours, that is your liberty to eat the meat, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, stop there. As a stronger brother, if you're a stronger brother or sister in Christ, you have knowledge about this. The stronger brother has knowledge. From your study of God's word and what you have been taught, you have knowledge about this. But the weaker brother doesn't. In his spiritual growth, in his spiritual capacity at the time, and what he has learned and what he has accepted and knows to be true, he's just not there yet. And so it says in verse 10, For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is what? Is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Do you see that? If you are strong in faith, you have knowledge about it. You understand from your knowledge of God's word that there's nothing wrong with eating the meat. In your spiritual growth and the knowledge of God's word, you're allowed to eat the meat with a clear conscience. You have, you have done nothing wrong. But the weaker brother isn't there yet. And it can be your knowledge that ruins the weaker brother. Your knowledge is an instrument of his demolition. Verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Then Paul adds, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. It says, you have wounded his weak conscience, and you do that by say, teaching him by example that it's okay for him to go against his conscience. Because he says, you haven't gone against your conscience, but it goes against my conscience. And he begins to believe it's okay when he sees you do it. And he goes against his conscience by doing it. And he is wounded. What does that mean? His conscience is so wounded, now he can't depend upon his conscience for anything. He's a conscienceless person. He has no inner guidance. Nothing that... Uh, you know, and so it says you have destroyed him because uh, of food. So verse 1 of Romans chapter 15 has the correct approach that builds up instead of tears down. It edifies the weaker brother. It's going to take some time for the weaker brother to grow in faith. And this could be on a whole host of things, whole host of things. That, that he's struggling with or he doesn't do or think you can't do or shouldn't do because of just where he's at. It's going to take some time to get rid of the old and bring in the new. And it's not your job to tear him down, to point out things, to take out, but what? Verse 1, But we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. The word translated bear there doesn't mean we just tolerate them. As if we, well, I'm bearing with him. That we just kind of bear with him. We bury our frustration with him. We, 
We kind of impatiently endure their inadequacies, those irritating habits that they still have. It's not the idea of tolerance or even intolerance. The Greek word for bear means to get under a load and carry it. Get under the load. It was used to the men who carried a stretcher with their friend on it. They carried him to the top of a roof. They tore out the roof and they lowered him to the feet of Jesus. They bore their friend. In Galatians chapter 6, it talks about bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. It means to get underneath and put your shoulder under it. It says to the weaker brother, I'm going to come right under there with you. I'm going to come right under your weakness and I'm going to walk with you in your weakness until you understand your freedom. I will not abuse you. I will not flaunt my freedom so you are wounded. I will consider you and I will get under your weakness and I will carry it with you. We need to carry the prejudices. We need to carry the errors. We need to carry the taboos, that is what they think they can do and can't do, of certain people. We need to come alongside them and nurture them along. And Paul adds in verse 1 of this 15th chapter, and not just please ourselves. Now the opposite of pleasing oneself is not detesting oneself. The opposite, it doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about yourself. The opposite of pleasing oneself is to deny oneself. To deny oneself. The path of discipleship. By pleasing ourselves, Paul means we please ourselves when we stand up for our own rights. We please ourselves when we exercise our freedoms, no matter how it affects other people. No matter how it affects a brother and sister in Christ. Rather, Paul says in verse 2 of Romans chapter 15, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. This is disregard for self. This is disregard of me. For the purpose of pleasing my neighbor literally to what is good to build him up for his edification. The word translated edification or to edify literally means to build a house. To build a house. It's an act of building. In the Greek New Testament, the word is used 11 times, refers to the physical building of a physical edifice, a house or a building but it's used seven times to refer to the building up of God's people, the body of Christ. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament says that to edify means to promote growth in Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. When we edify other believers, we are building them up, helping them grow spiritually in wisdom, affection, Grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. And Thayer got those from each one of those from a specific scripture passage that says that's what it means. And according to Vine's expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words, the word edify indicates the promotion of spiritual growth and development of character of believers by teaching or by example, suggesting such spiritual progress as the result of patient labor. <laughs> patient labor, like building a house, like remodeling a house. Edifying your brother or sister in Christ is hard work. It takes patience and it takes time. 
You know, there's some truth, we don't see bumper stickers anymore, but there's some truth in that bumper sticker that used to say, please be patient with me, God is not through with me yet. <laughs> you know, that's what we need to think of our weaker brothers and sisters as we come alongside. And so in the New Testament, edification includes any activity that results in more Christ-likeness. Where a person is more and more like Jesus Christ. More Christ-likeness either in ourselves, because we can be edified by others and through the Holy Spirit. We edify others. And so it's mutual edification of one another involves helping one another on the road, on the path to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And it requires the participation of the entire church, the entire body of Christ. Each one of us is given a spiritual gift. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ, to edify others. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul exhorts all the believers, therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul writes, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Literally, the word for unwholesome there is putrid, rotten. Don't let any rotten word come from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. You know, you have to also be sensitive to the need of the moment for edification, so that it will what? Give grace to those who hear. We live in a world today that enjoys tearing people down. That, that's what our, our culture does. We see it on reality TV shows where they pull them aside and they just bang, 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 bang at everybody else and whatever they're, whatever they're going against. We see and hear the coarse interactions on talk radio and, and talk TV, and we especially see it in politics. The whole goal is to tear somebody else down. There's a continual display 24-7 of putting people down instead of building people up. You know, I've often said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, the worst thing that ever happened to our country was 24-7 sports. And I'm going to take that to news in a minute, because you can't talk about a team, any team, for an hour without telling you what you think's wrong about them and why this and that. No, the worst thing is what? 24-7 news. 24-7 news. I think that's actually one of the worst things that ever happened in our country, because you can't talk 24-7 about anything without deviating into tearing somebody down or tearing other people's ideas down or whatever. And the misuse of words and actions can bring destruction spiritually, morally, emotionally, physically. However, this should not be said of those who follow Jesus Christ. The church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and continues to grow and be built up to edify other people with our words and with our actions. Now, if you were to ask why, why, why should I bear the weaknesses of the weak? Why should I build others up, even forsaking myself? Why should I not please myself and, and seek to please others? Why, why should I always put other people before my, myself? The Apostle Paul answers the question in verse 3 of Romans chapter 15. Verse 3 it begins with the word for, or it could begin with the word because. For, because, even Christ. Paul is begging us here to look at Jesus. 
to look at Jesus. Turn our eyes and our hearts toward him. For even Christ did not please himself. Look at Christ. While on this earth, Jesus always set the interest and the needs of others above his own. And we could look at lots of examples, but Paul doesn't bring them out here, so I'm not going to. But the Gospels show that Christ lived to do the will of the Father. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, before going to the cross, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. For even Christ did not please himself. And then Paul quotes Psalm 69, verse 19. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, Psalm 69, verse 19 is quoted here, but Psalm 69 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted at least nine times by the New Testament authors. And the apostle Paul, or the apostles, all the apostles go back to it time and time again, and they say, This psalm has to do with what Jesus was doing on the cross. So Paul is saying, this is what Jesus did by dying in our place on the cross. In the 69th Psalm, the psalmist, the man who wrote the psalm, was a godly man who found people insulting God, and he became the victim of those insults himself. Since he had zeal for what God was doing, he had zeal for the house of God, the worship of God, the praise of God, the glory of God, the honor of God, the enemies of God were trying to destroy him. And all their reproaches, all their insults, all their criticism, all their hatred for God was falling on him because of his zeal for the glory of the house of the Lord. His passion for God's house consumed him. And the psalmist is so passionate for God's glory that he says, God, when someone defames your name, I'm taking it on myself. That's what's going on in the psalm. And now Paul is saying that what the psalm is really saying is that when Jesus came to this earth as a human being, All the reproaches that have been hurled at God because of our sin, Jesus said, I'm taking it upon me. Give it to me. I will take it upon myself. He's talking about what Jesus did on the cross to redeem us. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, who existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit as God, entered into history and added humanity to his deity. And he became a man, not ceasing to be God, but having two natures, fully God, fully man. And he did that ultimately. Why did he take on humanity? So that all the sins of all the people who will be redeemed, Jesus said, I put it on my back. I'm going to bear all those sins on the cross. I'm going to carry it. Jesus says, the reproaches of those who reproached you, Father, fell on me. You see, every sin we commit, every sin we commit, reproaches God. It's an insult to a holy God. The Hebrew word for reproach means to hold God in contempt 
We've already seen in that Romans, the word contempt means it despises him. When we sin, it holds God in contempt. It despises God. It disgraces God. It insults God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he said, that's all on me. All on me. I'm taking it all on myself. That's Isaiah chapter 3 in a nutshell, isn't it? Turn over to Isaiah chapter 3, verse 3. This is speaking of the suffering servant who we know to be Jesus Christ. In the third verse of Isaiah chapter 3 reads, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore. In our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And here's the point that Paul is making here. If Jesus bore all my sins on the cross, all my iniquity, and every sin I ever committed in thought or deed or ever will commit while I'm still on this earth, where just one sin merited eternal separation from God in hell forever, just one sin. If God took all the reproach to himself and all my sin upon himself, and rather than pleasing me, he put his shoulder under the cross, he carried it to Calvary, where he was raised up, he was crucified, and he carried all of our griefs and all of our sorrows, then who am I to refuse to bear the weaknesses? of a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. When he bore it all for you, and he bore it all for me. Who am I to say, I have a right to live my own life, pleasing myself, pursuing my own happiness and well-being, when my Savior didn't pursue his for my sake? And not only that, remember, this is a remodeling project. It's in with the new. God says to each one of us in Jesus Christ, I'm going to make you more and more like my son, Jesus Christ. Let's do this glorious restoration project together. And the cool thing is, it's not just me and the Holy Spirit or you and the Holy Spirit working in this. It's the entire body of Christ. It's all of us together. The entire body of Christ as, as we edify one another and each one of us build in into the lives of one another. Where we encourage one another and build one another up. You come alongside me and put under your shoulder some of my weaknesses and bear with me. And I come alongside you and put my shoulder on some of your weaknesses and bear along with you. And in doing so, we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. 
And quite frankly, when the world sees us doing this in this time of pandemic and civil unrest and everything that's going on in our country right now, as the whole country is falling apart around us, the world is going to see those who stand above that and bear one another's burdens. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you took all of our sin upon you at the cross. But it's not just about demolition. It's not taking out of our lives those things that need to go as we put off the old man, but we also put on the new. Father, we're looking forward to that day where it does not yet appear what we shall be like, but we will be like him. We shall be like Jesus. And in the meantime, Lord, I thank you that you are working in each one of our lives to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you have provided this church, this body of believers, this fellowship as we live and serve and work and share one another's burdens and also share one another's joys, Father, that you're using this process to make us as Grace Baptist Church more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more like him in our service, in our character, in who we are, and even how we think. think. And Lord, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.